Nation podcast. Uh, we are here for another episode of Dive Cuts. I am your host, Sam Snelling, uh, bourbon in hand. Uh, with me, as always, my good friend, Matthew J. Harris. Matt, how are you? I'm well. Uh, I have Diet Dr. Pepper in me, so uh, each enjoying a tasty treat. You're not you're not sipping on a E.H. Uh, e. Taylor single barrel? Uh, no, no. Um, <laughs> we, uh, we're trying to fill it, finish a... a, a, a I can't speak right now. A, uh, a Weller Special Reserve. So I think Ellery, my uh, my wife, is upstairs uh, putting a dent in that. Or at least that's what she was pouring when I came downstairs. Well, uh, I hope that you can figure out how to speak because we're about to embark on a podcast where you're going to be required uh, to speak for a little bit here. I don't know if the audience um, wants that, though. Uh, do, do we really know the audience is keen on that? Uh, I... I mean, I don't know what our, like, reviews to, uh, like, positive reviews to Matt Talking More ratio is, um, but I, I, I can't imagine that, that people tune in to not want to hear you speak. Yeah, I hope so. Maybe I mean, I think, I think we, we, we speak about equal amounts, don't we? I think we do. If they're hate listening, we're still getting the, still getting the metrics. <laughs> Joke's on them. Yeah. Um, well, so our fair Missouri Tigers are, uh, still undefeated on the season after defeating, uh, that wretched institution in, uh, Lynchburg, Virginia, um, more known for, uh, the, uh, Falwell's ventures with pool boys than, uh, really anything academically. Um, but they have some pretty good sports programs. And uh, and so that game happened last night. It was a uh, so I guess we're, we're we haven't recorded since Wichita State. That was also a win. That was a uh, a good win also on the road. Uh, Missouri won by ten. It felt like a game that was never really in doubt. I think Wichita State sort of closed it down to about four at halftime, but pretty quickly after halftime, Missouri got the lead back up to double digits and and felt like they kind of coasted. The game against Liberty, though, I think made a lot of people pretty uncomfortable. Um, they like to play sort of a similar pace uh, as Virginia, which is slow. Um, for the most part, they also tend to be pretty efficient offensively. Um, they take a lot of three-pointers, and when those three-pointers go in, as they did in the first half, um, you know, they, can, they can open up some leads if you become impatient. Uh, Missouri kind of being a team right now that really does want to get out and, and run a little bit and, and play a little bit of a higher pace. Um, I think there were some moments of frustration in that first half, but they sort of recentered. Uh, second half, like you could tell they were just in control of the game. Liberty really, really struggled uh, to get good shots off. Um, Missouri was really, really focused defensively. Uh, and it turned out well for the good guys. Um, your takes? Uh, I think Liberty is one of those games that like you you put on the schedule because it's a quality mid major. Um, it's been a quality mid major the last couple of years, so that that helps you know for a myriad of like metric reasons. It helps you know uh, with the NCAA selection committee. It helps with the SEC's kind of like you know, mandate that you know teams have like an average opponent with an 
uh, have opponents with an average RPF like 150, I think. So, I mean, it ticks some boxes there. Um, but also, I think they, they play a style that um, is definitely challenging. I think I said last night, it's, it's like Dick Bennett and Pete Carroll got drunk at a bar and decided this is how we're going to run a college basketball program. It's it's pack line on one end, and then they run a little bit of blocker mover, but a lot of Princeton concepts on the other. Uh, big step out a lot. Um, that they're really, really, really great, uh, given what they're drilled at doing and having cutters. Um, and it, I think, what happened last night was you just saw Missouri. I think really, and you and you can speak to this probably better than I can. Once Tillman, once Liberty was able to draw Tillman out of the paint. Missouri just had a real tough time figuring out where to send help and when to rotate down, when to rotate out to shooters, just because they were, I think, trying to be mindful of those cutters, but also, I think, trying to, you know, be, you know, and have some backside protection there. But you could really see some guys being like coming down off defensive possessions where a guy got an open corner three going, no, you close out, I help down. So I think there were some issues there with communication, what they were going to do with Tillman. Uh, some of those bigs, uh, you know, I think like Shiloh Robinson and you know guys like Kyle Rohde could step out and drive it a little bit, and or at least drive from the elbow. So Missouri, I think, was just trying to work through some things defensively, and because of what happened there on that end, I think it kind of bled over offensively. I think they got frustrated and they were trying to make some things happen early with Tillman, and that didn't really work. And then they tried to run their pick and roll actions, and you know Drake and not, not Drake, but Liberty was doing a really really good job at hard hedging and kind of you know, throwing the wrenches in the gears there. And you saw Pinson, I think, really try and force some action at times. The turnovers got up, and I think, to what you said earlier, it just was the first half where the style, I think, really had them out of sorts. And when they went in the locker room, it, it seemed like what came out in the second half was, we're going to lock down defensively, we're going to clean up our rotations, and then we're just going to be really, really concerned about every opportunity. It almost looked like dribble-drive motion. Every time there's a kick out, you put the ball in the deck and you go back to the rim. We're going to put pressure on the rim, and we're going to make sure that we have things sorted out defensively. And you saw Conzo do that with personnel, too, in the second half to, to do that. So I think it was, you know, I've talked a lot of technical stuff here, but I think I did that because this was a game where Missouri had to really do a lot of in-game adjustments. They had a good scout, but they had to come back and adjust in-game with personnel and with the scouting report. And I think they did a good job, and it's a sign of a veteran team that, you know, midway through the second half, they'd kind of unlocked Liberty, and they were able to open up the lead, and they were able to kind of coast, honestly, in the last five minutes. So uh, a challenge you need in non-con, definitely frustrating at times, but I think they did a good job solving the Rubik's Cube as they went along and, and got the result they needed. Well, and Liberty's a team that, I realize every season is is going to be different, and certainly their their season last year was uh, was excellent. I mean, they they were looking so good before the season, um, like they couldn't find any good games. Uh, like, really, I think their their first um, their their first actually like challenging game in the uh, in the twenty twenty season was when they made a late December trip to LSU yeah. uh, and, and caught their first loss in the year. Um, but everybody kind of knew that they were going to be good. Uh, and so, like, all the high majors were like, yeah, we're, we're not going near that. Um, but this year, so, you know, so it, it is kind of tough because you have a team. Um, so they, they've 
lost to Purdue. They beat Mississippi State and South Carolina, lost to TCU. Uh, so they were 2-2 two and two, uh, coming into the game against high major teams. Um, I think Mississippi State, we both expect to be like amongst the worst teams in the SEC. Mm-hmm. Um, but South Carolina, uh, I mean, the, they've kind of traditionally had some early season bumps. But and that I think style we, is a we both, for Brent yeah, Martin's team. Yeah, and like we really felt that, I mean, South Carolina was a team that I like. I think is a top half of the uh, league if if they get you know kind of their their guard rotations locked down, uh, and and guys are you know playing like they were last year. I think they could be that kind of team. Um, so that's a really good win. Um, Purdue, I think, is kind of what Missouri is a maybe aspiring to be uh, this year, which is like a top 30 level team. Uh, TCU is not looking great, um, you know, but Jamie Dixon always has some, some decent talent there. And that was a really close, ugly game. So, you know, I just, I think when you look at it and it's just like, all right, like they, they threw some, uh, some punches early and, and, you know, Missouri absorbs, you know, some, some body blows if you want to kind of keep the analogy going. Uh, and then they came out and, and really like it was, it was strategic. It was methodical. Um, and then they, you know, they keeping the analogy going, I, I think they dropped the haymaker, uh, you know, kind of later in the second half and, and just really kind of put them away. I think I looked it up on while I was writing study hall, it was like a 16 to four run. Um, but, but really that punch where it was just like Mark Smith, three Jeremiah Tillman dunk. Like right around that, like they they just they got the separation where it was like six eight got it up to thirteen, and after that it was kind of done. Yeah, once it got to that to that margin with the time left, and given how Liberty wants to play, it, I think that you know it becomes instead of a two or three possession game, it becomes more like four or five, just because the time they're going to burn. And by that point, Liberty had had really cooled down. I think they were something like two of thirteen from three in the second half, so they were. They cooled off a little bit, and Missouri was. Yeah, getting... you had kind of pointed out, like during during the like the second half, that it looked like they were kind of pressing for for outside shots when yeah. you know they weren't really kind of in need of a of a three pointer. They were still kind of taking these deep threes and rushing. They... Uh, any moment they had like a split second of of open look, they were rushing their shot to get it off, and it just uh, I mean that's a recipe for disaster. Yeah, in the first half, what they did was they they. They made a considered effort to pull Tillman out. They let their guards sort of play downhill. Um, Chris Parker was just a guy who would get a ball screen, dribble around a lot, and make it a dribbling exhibition, and then kind of wriggle his way free at the rim. Um, their bigs would drive a little bit from the elbow. And then they got Missouri's rotations you know, out of sorts, and that's when they started knocking down threes about five or six minutes into the game. Once they'd gotten Missouri's kind of help bungled at the other end and kind of put them out a little bit on their heels. That's when they started getting some open corner threes. And I think once Missouri figured out, you know, okay, here's how we're going to switch on Parker. Here's how we're going to handle, you know, we can talk about this. They went more to Mitchell Smith in the second half as a, as the form they're platooning Mitch more in as a five because he could handle those drivers and he could play in space, which was allowing the guards to switch a bit more. And that was easier for them to close out and they were a little bit easier on the help side rotations too. So like you said, Missouri is a little bit more methodical. They tweaked their personnel. And once 
those you know drives weren't there for their bigs in favorable situations. They had to kind of lean on their jumpers, and Missouri does a good job most of the time being sound and closing out under control. So it was it kind of built to that point. And I think the other thing we can talk about is I think Missouri just did a better job valuing the basketball. I think in the first half they were shooting sixty percent inside the arc. They were getting to the line. I think their free throw rate was like forty five percent or something. They were doing a good job when they held on to the basketball. They just weren't holding on to it. And I think the key change they made was they went and put Drew Bugs in. They, you know, Xavier Pinson, we've, we can talk about kind of the bumpy past two games he's had, but Conzo said, we're going to put Drew Bugs and Drew Smith on the floor. Mark Smith's going to be our floor spacer. And we're going to ride this group. And we're going to make sure that we have guys that are coming down, getting us into offense and, you know, not giving the ball away and, I think that helped Missouri find a rhythm at the other end. And once they got a lead, it teed them up, you know, for that push where Pinson came in and kind of helped catalyze them. But I think the first 10 minutes of the second half was just, let's make sure we're sound defensively and we're holding onto the ball and making a real concerted effort to attack the rim. Yeah. And ultimately like, once once they kind of settled in, and I, I kind of felt like the last, what, two, three minutes of the first half, I think is when, you know, Martin really kind of made the uh, the switch yeah. to sort of stick with bugs. Um, yeah. you, once can... they, they made that move, it really felt like there was this momentum shift and that Missouri was basically settled. And I think they closed it down to like, I don't know, what was it, four points? Yeah. Um, they at were, halftime. They were down 26-15 with about six minutes left. He subbed in Mitchell Smith uh, at the four, and then with 4.21 left in the half, it was Bugs who came on to relieve Pinson. And they went back to the starters in, early in the second half. Um, Kobe Brown ran into some problems defensively. Pinson had a turnover or two, I think, and then that's when he just said, all right, we're, we're not messing around. And he put Bugs on the floor and made Mitch a small ball five. And that was really, I think, when they kind of unlocked things defensively. You can start to see them winnow away and chip away at the lead over the next four to five minutes there and really sort of start to get Liberty under control offensively when they made that happen. So it was between the six-minute mark in the first half and about the 17-minute mark in the second half that I think they figured out what they needed to do rotation-wise to to get things under wraps. Well, I really think like, and you kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier, but on top of that, the way that Liberty plays, and it's also kind of the same of Virginia, um, you know, when you play that slow pace, it works really, really well when you're ahead in the basketball game. But when you're behind, like it's a problem and you can see, like you could see everything shift uh, for them, like once Missouri had control and got the lead, now when it when it be's when it's like an eight point Liberty lead, like they feel like they're in control, they can take the shots that they want to take, they can be patient. But the second that Missouri has an eight point lead, and and I've always sort of felt like throughout Tony Bennett's tenure at Virginia, like this is like the flaw that they have. Um, now they're so good at Virginia that. 
there aren't a lot of those games where they're they're behind. But when they do get behind, as they did in the NCAA tournament, becoming the first one seed to ever lose, um, it puts a lot of pressure on you defensively and offensively when you know you don't have a lot of possessions. And so being ahead, that's fine because you're, you're going to just be patient and maximize each one. Um, but when you're behind, you know that like you have to you have to max out each one. Like there's not a, there's not as much room for error as there is when you're ahead. So I thought that was a uh, a pretty important thing for for Missouri to kind of get that surge and get the lead. It puts the pressure on the team that wants to play slower, uh, and and it's inevitably going to speed them up. Um, so. We could move on. I don't. I don't know that really. Um, you know, Falwell Light University. I guess they, they, they moved on. He's like suing them, right? It's ridiculous. But um, the only thing I would say out of this is the last thing, and it's not Liberty related. It's just I think I, I mentioned it earlier, and we can. It's been a bumpy two games for Xavier Pinson. Um, you mentioned it in study hall today, which everyone should go read we had talked about kind of a bellwether for this season and what this team was going to be was whether or not Xavier Pinson was a guy who could take a step forward and be a little bit more consistent as a distributor and a little bit more efficient offensively. And you, I, I was floored last night when you told me that his usage rate was 36%, which is fifth in the country. That, that is very high. That is more than Trey young at Oklahoma. And that guy about <laughs> hit a wall twenty games into the season for the Sooners. So, we- and and so he's also the only uh, the only guy that is at a high major that is that high. So the others are uh, at Al- Alcorn State, Georgia Southern, Sam Houston State, and Winthrop. Yeah, it that's not a sustainable usage level. But the I think the more worrying thing is his efficiency rate is ninety two. Uh, 100 is average in, uh, as a reference point, X was at 96.1 last year. So out of the gate, uh, not shooting the ball all that efficiently, especially from three, which was something that Missouri was hoping to see improved. Konzo had mentioned in the off season that he, you know, thought they had guys that can make threes and that he thought they could be better this year. Pinson has struggled out of the gate there. But I think again, the other thing that I look at is the turnover rate is still 25%. Like that, that's still too high for your second, for a guy who ostensibly is your secondary creator offensively. You know, if you're going to move Drew Smith off the ball in a PNR heavy offense, you need to have your secondary creator be a guy who can value the ball and make good decisions. And, you know, Pinson's turnover rate has not really budged this year. It's at 25.8 as a, I'm pulling it up now. That's higher than it was as a sophomore. It's not 30.6, which it was as a freshman, but his assist rate has creeped up every year, but the turnover rate has not really changed all that much. He's still drawing. He's, e- he's even on assist to turnover also. Yeah. So it's... So point being, um, if I don't mind if the shot's not working for him necessarily um, because Missouri had, because Mark Smith is shooting the ball well. Drew Smith has always been kind of a, a really crafty guy and a good finisher in the mid 
you know, in the mid-range and been able to get to the rim. They've got Tillman, who's, you know, when he's getting touches, is being efficient. So I worry less about the shooting than I do about kind of the distribution um, angle there. I think we talked about it a little bit just between you and I last night. You know, some reads, maybe he's late getting the ball to, you know, Tillman on some pick and rolls. Maybe they're missing him on duck-ins. You know, there are some drives to the rim, you know, where the last two games where officials have kind of let things go contact-wise at the rim, and he's not finishing at a really high rate there. So if if he's not knocking down jumpers and he's trying to put pressure on the rim, but he's not getting fouls, and, you know, the turnover rate and the assist rate and that assist-to-turnover ratio are still one-to-one, I'm not saying they're going to put Pinson on the bench. It's just it's. I think it's harder for this offense to function if he's not kind of, you know, either one scoring well off, you know, becoming a slasher out of those ball screens. If he's not knocking down jumpers to space, you know, off of Drew, if you're going to put more possessions with him, or if you're going to put the ball in his hands, if he's not making good decisions, it's hard to see kind of, you know, where he can find some solace right now. And I think last night you saw, you know, Zoe put him on the bench a couple of times after, you know, maybe he forced a drive or after there was a bad decision with a pass. And then the second half, he just put bugs on the floor to try and settle things. So I, I think it's worth watching, you know, how X responds over the next couple of games to see where this is going for him. Because Illinois is going to... Illinois has some athletic guards and a really, really physical big at the rim. So it'll be it'll be fascinating to see what happens with him in that game on Saturday. Yeah, and I think it's pretty clear that a lot of the success that Missouri had down the stretch last year was was due to Xavier Pinson. Sorry, ex-Xavier Pinson. Um, I'm always going to struggle with that because it's like been drilled into my head that you pronounce like Xavier Musketeers with a Z. Um, but it is also like he pronounces his name X Xavier. Uh, so yes, you have to, you have to give credit to him for what he was able to do down the stretch. Excuse me. And, uh, but I think what we've seen is, is outside of, um, you know, really the, the first game and then. Uh, you know, he was really good in the second half against Oregon. Um, but you haven't really seen that carry over the last two games. And and part of our concern kind of coming into the year was how consistent was, would he be? It was encouraging after the first two games. Um, you know, not only was he, uh, was he sort of attacking the same clip and still sort of maintaining some efficiency, um, but he was also like, you know, making enough threes to, um, you know, make you feel comfortable with him shooting. Um, but he's like, he's over his last 10, the last two games. And yeah, it's, I mean, so two games is he, and I, I would say I was happy that he didn't take as many against Liberty. <laughs> um, cause he was continuously taking threes against Wichita state. Um, you know, and at least against Liberty, like when he was getting to the rim, he was finishing for the most part. Um, you know, so there is, there is going to be a little bit of, uh, you know, like what Xavier Pinson are we getting 
um, tonight when it comes to you know each game. And if if you get the kind of you know player that he was down the stretch last year, if you get him you know who he was in the second half against Oregon, you're getting a guy who like is talented enough and 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 good enough to be like uh, you know on the All SEC team. I don't know if it's first team, but but on on the team somewhere. And uh, if he's not, then it's it really kind of becomes a, a drag to the offense. It puts a lot more pressure on on a few of the other guys. And, and clearly, like Mark Smith has has stepped up this year in, in uh, dramatic fashion. He's he's been terrific. Um, but I'd really like to like have less pressure on him and less pressure on Drew uh, to perform on a regular basis. And I think I think in order for you to be the kind of team that I think Missouri wants to be. Uh, you really do need um, as as many options as you, as you can have, and and I, I really think that you need you know two guards who you can kind of give the ball to and have them go get you a bucket. And I don't really think Mark is that guy, even though he's had some success driving the ball. You know, Mark is is going to thrive a lot more on on those kickouts and 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 attacking closeouts versus you know putting him in a ball screen. So, yeah, I mean, they definitely need Pinson to kind of find his consistency and 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 be the guy that that he's shown he can be at times and because they're gonna need every guard ready to go saturday uh let's just get into illinois because uh they got some dudes uh uh and we i mean we previewed them a little bit last week but (laughs) uh then they went um and you know, beat the tar out of Duke. Um, I still don't think like I think it's it's important to kind of put in context. This is some not of the an early Duke struggles. Team. Yeah, like yeah, this isn't the same Duke team that we've seen in even like some of the more recent years. Um, this is not a national title contender at Duke. Uh, they just don't, they don't have the kind of talent that they're used to bringing in, at least at the high end. Um. So yeah, so Duke's gonna struggle a little bit more than you're probably used to. Just I think like at this point, I think we can also probably uh, respect that Kentucky is probably gonna be in a uh, a similar boat. But I mean, but the game against Illinois for you know the Duke Illinois game that was not close. No, I mean I think it was it ended up being what like a thirteen or fifteen point win. Yeah, but if you watch the game, like it, it was, was clear they took one team was better. They, yeah, they took it to. Them. Um, and like we we've questioned in the past, like how much tenacity and toughness this team has, and like I the only game I really haven't seen a lot of, ironically enough, was the Baylor game. I I saw bits and pieces of that, but when I've watched Illinois this year, like they're they're engaged, they'll sit down. The changes that I think Brad's made to them defensively. It's made them more conservative, but I think it's also made them more sound. And I think they've exchanged. It'll sound weird. They don't play as aggressively on the ball. They're not looking to create turnovers. They're not looking to be physical and play on the line, up the line, which you would think would not breed a sense of toughness. But they are fantastic. They've gotten so much better defending ball screens this year. They close out efficiently. 
And if there's a long miss and you are not good in transition defense, they got the dudes to get out and run. They are really, really good at recognizing when they can get a transition advantage on you and when you're not doing a good job getting back, getting set, or getting matched up because they've got three guys who can take a quick outlet and initiate the break. So they've they've done a really, really good job changing philosophically and taking pride in that. And offensively, they've adapted really, really well. Um, to watch them against Duke and to watch how connected they were and how in sync they were was was pretty impressive. Well, I think it's it's important to also point out. So I don't know, um, I don't know how much you've watched this year as far as other uh, basketball games, but I, I think I can, I think I can say that I believe that Baylor and, and Gonzaga at this point are Far and away. clearly the two best teams in college basketball. Getting drilled by Baylor is a lot of teams are going to get drilled by Baylor this year. Yeah. And like, I, I don't think, I think the gap between one and two is significant enough. Um, you know, I think you probably look at, uh, you know, Villanova's up there. Uh, KU's probably up there. Um, well, look, yeah, about- but if, if you're, if you're looking at the big 10, uh, I think Illinois, the way that they played, are looking like a team that can win the Big Ten. Yep. To put this in perspective, like Baylor and Gonzaga are tied in efficiency, adjusted efficiency margin. They're four points ahead of Villanova in third. Like it's not even close. And then Villanova's basically two ahead of Texas. Like if you were to put Baylor on a neutral floor against Texas in a Big Twelve game. It'd be a six-point margin, would be, and you're thinking, oh, that doesn't sound like that's a lot for two top five teams when you're looking at Kim Palm efficiency rate. Like Baylor's up there, like in Illinois right now is fifteenth in Kim Palm. They're nine points in adjusted efficiency margin behind Baylor, like, and if Baylor's going right, losing by thirteen is actually not out that that's well within the you know within the margin of error you know that that that's not a crazy outcome so um and to think about this like duke is one point ahead of illinois in adjusted efficiency margin and lost to them by 13 in camp and lost to them in cameron by double digits so that should tell you that illinois is probably likely if as we begin to filter out data from last year in Kempom, Illinois is probably at this rate going to move into the top ten in Kempom. So that they're playing really, really well. Yeah, they are a little bit. Um, so they they opened the season uh, against two teams they probably should never have bothered to play. Um, so they opened against uh, North Carolina A and T. They won by about sixty. 62 uh, short change on that two points. <laughs> uh, okay, sorry about that. Uh, then they played Chicago State, um, who is uh, actually statistically worse than North Carolina a and I think North Car- Carolina a and actually wants to play a little bit more with tempo, <laughs> so that probably just crushed them. 81 uh, possessions sh- in that game. Jesus, I forgot about that. S- yeah, so Chicago State, um, they're bad. Uh, and their coach sat out the year. Yeah, Lance so Lance Irvin sat out the year. Former Missouri assistant Lance Irvin. 
Lance Irvin is uh, opted out on the year. <laughs> and I actually think Chicago State had a game, uh, was it last night maybe? And they were playing Loyola Chicago and like they only had one assistant coach who was yeah. being the head coach because yeah. another coach like was dealing with a family thing. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so their first two opponents were horrible. Uh, then they played Ohio and Ohio That's damn really- near beat them. They have a feisty point guard, a really, really good point guard there. So that was. Um, well, yeah. So if you if you follow the MAC, which I'm sure a lot of our listeners don't, um, uh, Ohio is coached by Jeff Bowles, who's a former uh, Thad Mata assistant um, at Ohio State. He's got a really good reputation, uh, smart recruiter, good basketball mind, um, and he has uh, what's the point guard's name? Jason Preston. Jason Preston. Um, who has quite a quite a story? Didn't have like any scholarship offers. Got talked into taking. I mean, he was planning on just going to college. Uh, got talked into taking a prep uh, year. A, a prep year and like kind of turned into a guy. And so uh, yeah, so he's at Ohio, looking like a guy who can play in the NBA at some point um, as like a six four kind of combo guard. Uh, but yeah, he he gave uh, he gave Illinois all kinds of trouble. And uh, and and put scare into him. I think. Let me look this up. He had thirty-one points on yeah. ten of nineteen shooting inside the arc. Yeah, and and eight assists. Ayo Ayo Desunu had a, went back at him. That was a really great game to watch those two. Those those guys were just going at it. It was, and uh, I, I liked. Brad kept it real simple for that last possession. Ball screen Ayo, and you just go to the rim and make the official <laughs> decide whether to blow the whistle. The official blew the whistle, so it was it was one of those things like we have a dude and we're just gonna let him go get it. Um, but if you're if you're like if you're like, and we we like to give credit where it's due. Like I, I mean, Brad has done a good job setting up this team to kind of build around Iodasumu, who I mean, unfortunately for. Uh, a lot of uh, Big Ten fans decided to come back for his junior year because I, I really think he probably would have been late first round, maybe early second round pick last year. Yeah. And that's like, that's guaranteed contract land. Yeah. Um, that's hard to turn down, but he came back and, and this is the, like, anytime you have a guy who is that level of an NBA talent and he returns to school, um, that's usually a sign that your your program is going to have a good year, and it certainly looks like Illinois at this point is trending towards having that year. Now we know the history of this game, recent history of this game, I should say, uh, and how Missouri has uh, kind of given <laughs> given Illinois some trouble, um, and considering like some of the you know the talent disparity. Um, you know, last year where Illinois, I think, finished like 30th or something in Kempom. Yeah. Um, you know, Missouri obviously struggled, but they, they still had Jeremiah Tillman, even though Tillman was kind of on uh, just one foot last year in that game. But anytime you have uh, Javon Pickett in the, uh, the Bragg and Rice game, you have a chance, Matt. Yeah. Uh, I think Illinois this year, though, they have traded in Andres Feliz or uh, Andre Corbello, a top 50 point guard who is very, very good. And um, Kipper Nichols is out, and Adam Miller, another top 50 guard and top 50 recruit, 
is in. Uh, so th- th- they upgraded the the backcourt a little bit. Um, and well, and he's he's still playing Damani Williams, who I I don't love. <laughs> Uh, but, Damani, but but Damani, I think, has transitioned himself into a much better role player. Yeah. Like to me, like this is this is the same sort of progression that I think we see Javon Pickett on, uh, and one that we saw Kevin Perrier make. A guy who is probably a borderline level guy at that level, um, and is thrust into a lot more minutes than he probably should be playing early in his career. Um, you know, because Damani is now a senior. For anybody that doesn't know, they, pro- they probably remember uh, Frank Williams um, from the Illinois teams of, what was that, like the early 2000s? Yep. Um, so Damonte is his son. <laughs> uh, that doesn't make you feel old. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, so he's a senior this year, and he's, he's sort of accepted that, look, like, I know my role. I'm not out, you know, trying to set scoring records. Uh, I'm going to come in. I'm going to defend. I'm going to rebound. Uh, I'm going to take open shots. Uh, and, you know, because he's playing with, with Io, he's playing with Kofi, uh, he's he's playing with a, a much better level of talent. Like, he's kind of fit into that role pretty well. So, Thank you, Trent, Trent Frazier, for kind of doing the same thing. A guy who... You know, Brad's first year was, you know, having to really, as that season went on, as a freshman, you know, really carved out a role there and look like their next, you know, big kind of key cog for them. Io shows up. They have a little bit of an issue, I think. Not issue as an animosity, but just trying to figure out, okay, who's going to be the primary ball handler when Brad was still running a heavy dosage of spread where there wasn't really ball handlers and it wasn't necessarily, I think a great fit for IO and Trent, it had worked for him and they were trying to resolve that. They got a little better last year, you know, Trent's now like the fourth or fifth option there, but he's bought in play, being a defender. He's done a really, really great job becoming a spot up threat for them. And he's a guy who can get opportunities to run when they get in transition off misses. So I think to your point, their veterans have done a really, really good job. And even like a guy like Bazanishvili, who was a starter his first year, is now like seeing just 30 or 40% of the minutes, you know, behind Kofi Cokeburn. Like they, I think that speaks to your culture being pretty healthy when you have guys who early on in their careers are playing major roles, seeing major minutes, you know, accept the fact that they're going to be ancillary pieces. And, you know, even then they've like brought in a guy like, you know, they brought in a freshman in, you know, like Jordan Hawkins, who's like taking minutes there. They've got, you know, Grandison, a D3 transfer who's getting minutes. I think it's just, you know, we've questioned the toughness and sort of the tenacity and the culture of this program. But you, I take it as a good sign that these veterans and these other guys who've come in have all sort of accepted roles. And, really allowed guys like Adam Miller and Andre Curbelo to step in and take on the appropriate amount of workload to really augment guys like Cookburn and 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 Desunmu. So th- they've got a good blend. And that's a credit on the locker room culture that they've been able to get there. So you um you mentioned that Brad has sort of undergone quite a few changes. Uh find find this interesting. So Brad's first year uh, was not a great year for Illinois. They finished 
102 in Ken Palm. Uh, defensively, um, they were number four in turnover rate. So the number number four team in forcing turnovers. They forced turnovers in 23.2 um, per, uh, percent of uh, possessions. Um, they were 350th, Matt, in free throw rate. They fouled the shit out of everybody. They fouled a lot. They they generated a lot of turnovers, but they fouled a lot, uh, basically giving teams an opportunity for free points, um, which can negate some of the work you do in getting teams to turn the ball over. Right now, uh, their turnover rate on defense is 282nd. Mm -hmm. The free throw rate is 55th. Yeah, they basically so it, 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 they basically reversed what they were doing before. Uh, said we're 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 not going to force a lot of turnovers, but we're also not going to give you free points. And I I think like the the free throw rate thing is something. It's it's an area that Missouri exploited down the stretch last year. Uh, they got to line a lot. They generated free points. They improved their offensive efficiency. Uh, the fact that Illinois is is like actively trying to avoid sending. Uh, the other team to the free throw line is automatically going to make their defense better. Yeah, they still like you could tell that Brad was a Frank Martin assistant for a long, long time because he used the same on the line, up the line scheme. A lot of ball pressure, be physical, get into people, and you know get out and and run. Um, you know, there's a continuum, and you make trade offs along it. Um, they now they don't play pack line, but they're more conservative now. Um, they're not trapping. They're not as aggressive hard hedging in ball screens. Um, they've made some concessions to the fact that we're going to trade turnovers and transition opportunities for good closeouts and limiting what you do in the half court. Um, I think what's interesting is like if you I went and looked this up just before we got on, like. Illinois has got a ton of athletes, so you would think, okay, they would want to be physical and they'd want to create turnovers. You know, the Baylor numbers skew it, but they're 103rd in pick-and-roll defense, which doesn't sound great, but again, if you take the Baylor numbers out, they're probably, like, top 75. They're only 52nd nationally in foul rate in ball screens, like, and they're 270th in turnover rate. So what they've done is they've essentially said, in ball screens, we're going to sit down, keep you in front, be sound switching, and we're going to, you know, avoid fouling you. And the backside defense is really, really good. And I think a big difference is if you go back and you watch Kofi Cokeburn last year compared to this year, he's gotten markedly better understanding what they want to do in pick and roll coverage. And that's harder to play him off the floor. And so if they go to some coverages where he can hang back in the paint as a rim protector, now you're in trouble because you've got athletic guards that can sit down, stay in front, and oh, if you get by them, now there's six, seven, like three hundred pounds. There's seven foot, three hundred pounds waiting for you at the rim, and that's a and he's not fouling as much when they get there. Like if you, this will be like in Missouri had success against Oral Roberts and Oregon in pick and roll defense. Those teams were 187th and 229th in allowing scoring in those ball screens. Like Illinois 70th. Wichita State was 135. Like this is going to be the best ball screen defense they face. And it was a decision that Brad made to go that direction. So 
if they're not fouling and they're able to sit down and switch on you, it, I don't know where Missouri's going to go for offense. Because if you throw it in, if you try and throw it into the paint to Tillman, he's got to go against Cokeburn. So I, it'll be fascinating what they scheme up offensively to try and generate some points here. And just th- throw the ball to, to Javon Pickett. Problem solved. I mean, trust Ravon's rage to carry you through. <laughs> it's worked for two years. Yeah, but they, um, that was before they made the stylistic change, so Javon wasn't seeing this group that's, that's sort of adjusted it. So we'll see if uh, if Javon... It, it is interesting, though. Like we, we talk about the schematic changes. You look at what they did offensively. They kind of went away from the spread after Missouri, you know, made them play through mud last year. They, they changed the offense up after that game. So Conzo, uh, Conzo and Brad have both evolved their offensive scheme set. Conzo probably more directly or potentially more directly than Brad in, in Brad's uh, evolution. So I think uh, you are trending towards uh, an Illinois pick for the for this game. Spragan writes, I, Missouri – I think brings a little more edge into it. They have the last couple of years. Um, I think Illinois though, given their aspirations, given their talent, um, I think is going to, they have some more motivation this year. I think, you know, they obviously want to, they see themselves as a big 10 title contender. They see themselves as a final four team. Uh, I don't think um, the guy, guys like IO and Adam Miller want to go back to Chicago and know that X has, two or three wins on them. Uh, I don't think, you know, Mark Smith and his family have forgotten his experience in Champaign. Um, Tillman, I think, you know, has struggled in some of these games and wants to put together a good one. Um, and, you know, it's a, and honestly, this is the first time that somebody's had a home floor advantage in four decades. So who knows how that helps Missouri, but Missouri doesn't have fans in the stands. So, yeah, I mean, the home yeah. floor advantage yeah. <laughs> but I mean, Missouri's not having to travel. I say whatever you will. It's there's a whole lot of different variables here. Um, well, and, and Mark Smith, uh, despite all the incentive he has to to have you know good games against Illinois, has, has not. No, they, they yeah, they, like he had five points his first year. He did not score last year. Yeah, um, it's so yeah, there could be some uh, some incentive for him to to kind of come out. Um, I at this point. I don't really know how to pick this game. I, I, I think Illinois is just really, really good. <laughs> and and even though like if you obviously people are listening to us, they've listened to the pod. They know uh, how I feel about this Missouri team. I think this Missouri team going into the year was was underestimated. And I think what you're seeing is the reaction of a lot of people. Sort of what I believed all along is that Missouri was was going to be pretty good. Um, I I but I think Missouri is like maybe thirtieth good, and I think Illinois at this point like they could be like five to fifteen, uh, depending on uh, how depending on how their conference season goes. Like the Big Ten is is murderous this year. It's it's the best league in uh, in the uh, in the country, and so I mean I could see a scenario where Illinois maybe hits a few bumps, um, and. Uh, and doesn't win the league, but I certainly think they have the potential to win the league. And if they, if you win the Big Ten, you should you should probably be a one seed. Yeah. I, I, right now, I, I would 
I would lean Illinois by a couple of points. And I, it'll be interesting to see what the game flows like. Do, do they open up a lead and sit on it, or is it you know nip and tuck throughout? Um, it's for Missouri to get a win here um, is huge. Uh, I don't out of the two games on Saturday, people will probably hate me for saying this. I think the basketball game's bigger. I think it's more important, like stakes wise, for for for. Well, there's a Twitter poll on this, Matt. There is. Um, I'm sure people are going to come at me and say, what are you talking about? It's a top 10 football team. It's Georgia. The practical impact of Missouri beats Illinois, a Final Four contender, gets its third quad one win. That, that That's a third potential quad one win in five games. Massive. It, it, the the impact of a win over Illinois on this season is greater than the impact of a win over Georgia in this season. Um, strictly like looking, I mean, yes, would it be great if Mizzou finished second in the SEC East? Great, yes, it would. Uh, but logistically, it doesn't really move the needle a lot. Um, I mean, whether they're second or third, they've outperformed expectations this year. Um, I tend to think that if you're a believer in Drinkwitz, you're already a believer, and I think there's a lot of recruits that are that are believers. Uh, and I don't, so I don't think if they go out and and lose to Georgia, um, I don't really think it it moves the needle on whether people think Drinkwitz is the guy or not. Um, but I think that there's a big conversation shift that happens if you beat Illinois. Because this Illinois team, this is a, a far better team than they beat last year. It is a like otherworldly better team than they beat two years ago. And like you said, it's, it, it, it is a quad one win. But you're talking about a rival that the margin between Missouri and Illinois, I think overall... If you like zoom out and just look at like program history, look at spending, all those kinds of things when you're ranking a, a program, I think Illinois is a better job. Yeah. Um, it's not without some some pitfalls, but so is Missouri. Uh, any, anytime you have Chicago uh, in your recruiting territory, it's going to be challenging. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why Brad Underwood made some of the hires that he did. He wanted guys that were not afraid to kind of swim in some deep waters. Um, but I think that there is a lot more similarity between Missouri basketball and Illinois basketball than there is Missouri football and Georgia football. Yeah. Like, and anytime you can hold that advantage over a team of similar ranking, I will take that win every time. Like It's kind of like, would I rather beat Kentucky on an annual basis in football or Georgia on an annual basis in football? And I would say Kentucky because, well... I annual basis is probably a bad way to say it but um but i would i would rather have the kentucky win because that keeps you above kentucky you're never going to be above georgia georgia spends way too much money the the pockets are way too deep missouri can't compete at that level of football but they can in basketball why aren't you a believer sam (laughs) because i've seen our donor base and what what they spend on the program currently but the but in a pandemic, they're going to build an indoor. Committed. Like, setting that aside, just the practical aspect of 
we talked a couple weeks ago when the schedule came out about what you needed to do this year. Missouri has gotten insanely good luck that its schedule hasn't been nuked. And if it does, and if it comes out of that mostly intact schedule with a neutral floor win over Oregon, who looks like just anecdotally like eye testing it right now, which is not much, but they look like an NCAA tournament team. It's probably going to be like a six to eight seed. You beat them on a neutral floor. Wichita State, if Wichita State gets into the top seventy-five of net or the top fifty in, or near the top fifty of net of the net ratings, that's a quad one win. You beat Illinois at home, barring a total collapse in Champaign, that's a quad one win. Like, you you schedule 13 non-con games hoping to get two or three of those. If you get them in eight, you've absolutely crushed it. And to get them in five games is even better. You could lose the rest of non-con, and Missouri's done enough right now to go into SEC play and feel like getting to 10 wins would put them in the mix, would put them solidly in the mix for an at-large bid. Like, to beat Illinois on Saturday achieves everything you could ever want in non-con. And like you said, it gives you a win over a regional rival, one that only spends about a million dollars more than Missouri. Um, It's one where Brad has kind of turned his focus more to Chicago uh, than St. Louis, but still that matters if you're going to go into St. Louis having... Three straight wins and a tournament bid. You know, we've talked about Missouri needing some momentum uh, if it wants to, you know, try and break through some elite guys in St. Louis. This this puts another, you know, strong argument in your portfolio. So, uh, to me, a win over Illinois, the magnitude is bigger. It, it, it just is. Um, and now I'm going to have people who listen tell me uh, I'm a traitor for not buying in totally Eli Drinkwitz. But... That, that that's just how I feel. I'm I am I think I'm as bought in as you can be bought in on on Eli Drinkwitz. I think what he's done this year has been fantastic. Um, I am just not bought into what Missouri is willing to invest into its football and basketball programs. Um, and knowing how basketball works, like you can get by and be successful with what Missouri spends. Like, it would be helpful if they spent more, but you can make it work. Um, Like, Missouri football needs, like, everything (laughs) to kind of go their way uh, to to win the East. It needs $20 million more in the budget. Yeah, like, and that's that's just the the East. That's not the whole league. Um, And you kind of look back at, at, you know, their back-to-back, East championships like Florida was kind of down and Georgia and was down. Georgia was kind of figuring it out and I mean still beating Georgia was great. Um, you know Missouri came back the next year and and sort of you know got a little lucky with how some games played out um, in order to get that second championship. But that's kind of what I mean. Like like the margin for error in football is is uh, is thinner. So. Um, I, could, I just think you're going to get a lot more value. And he, you and I have kind of talked about this privately. I, I really feel like they should just kind of go all in on, on hoops and uh, and just be content with like a 8-5 and five kind of 
football program. I had a friend. Um, the last point I'll make is I had a friend the other day who was watching, who grew up in Omaha, and uh, he and his buddies were watching Creighton, Kansas, and they had grown up in Creighton was kind of that plucky men major, and they didn't believe that like Creighton was like an actual like power program now. And um, he had me look it up. Creighton spends more money on basketball than Iowa State, Iowa, Kansas State, and Missouri. Creighton is a top 10 team. Creighton plays in a really great arena. Creighton has a top 10 recruiting class. Creighton had a... When Creighton stepped into the Big East, they didn't just say, okay, we're going to be happy spending $6.5 million a year. They spent one and a half to two million dollars more they made a commitment to the sport and they you know and that was an assistant budget that was you know facilities that they they stepped into it and they said if we're going to take on this challenge if we're going to go into a power conference we have to commit resources and creighton's not insane creighton's like probably around in the upper 30s to low 40s in terms of spending but they're ahead of some regional rivals they're ahead of some teams that we would normally associate with, you know, not spending what they spend. So it's dollars don't solve everything, but I think it reflects a commitment there. And you can even, I think, see Nebraska sort of realize, oh man, we have to catch up. Nebraska spends nine million dollars a year on basketball. They spend more, Nebraska spends more on basketball than Missouri does. They hired Fred Hoiberg. They went out and they paid for that staff to come in. You know. Nebraska's 2021 class has a five star in it and two top 100 kids. Like, and that's on top of the work they're doing in the transfer market. You spend, you hire good people, they go get good players. Like, that's, and I think fans need to understand that, like, yes, Conzo Martin makes $3 million a year, but if you go look at some top coaches and if you go look at some of the staffs that they go against, I mean, Missouri's, Missouri's okay, but I, I don't think Missouri's close to what a top 25 program is in terms of spending on that stuff. So, um, but we got to build a football facility, uh, and not, so, uh, basketball is just going to have to make do. You have any, uh, any takes before we get out of here on the, uh, on Aaron Dryden, you know, kind of tweeting out the little bit on, on slew scheduling. I just want these two teams to work it out, man. I don't put blame anywhere. Let's just figure it out. Um, I, I don't believe <laughs> that... I don't buy the argument that it benefits other teams more than benefits Mizzou. Because this is my argument. If you're better than that, those programs, you beat them. And I'm not saying this to upset SLU fans, but I don't see SLU growing into a rival that is equal to bragging rights or equal to border war. And Missouri... Uh, Missouri what about I, battle line? Corporate-ass rivalry. <laughs> State Farm-sponsored rivalry. Shelter insurance, get it right. I don't even care. I don't even care what brand it is. I'm State Farm all the way over here. But no, it... I would like to have made it work this year. It seems like this is the year when flexibility was maximal. I would have loved to seen it come together. Um, but, you know, if there's a year where Missouri can get it on the schedule, let's put it on the schedule, you know? Yeah, I think it, it kind of comes down to, like, I mean, and as a, really, as a fan of both programs, I mean, I 
make no qualms about not really caring much for Travis Ford um, as a basketball coach. But, um, I mean, he's done a really good job at SLU. And I grew up going to SLU basketball games. Um, I am uh, I'm more of a Missouri fan now because, like, it's kind of become part of what I do. Uh, you know, but a few years ago when, when Rick Majerus um, had that thing going and, and subsequently when Jim Cruz kind of took over Majerus's program and, and they had a couple really great years, like it was, I was watching as much slew basketball as I was watching Mizzou basketball. I mean, it's, so it's, I don't, I don't say this from a standpoint of like, uh, I'm a Mizzou guy and SLU is the little brother. Like, it's not about that. It's it's a realization that SLU is an Atlantic 10 program. There is no actual rivalry between the two programs other than, you know, some slight animosity between a small collection of, of you know, the group's fan bases. For the most part, I think that regional games like this should be played far more often because it's more interesting. Like, I think it's far more interesting for Missouri to play Missouri State, uh, you know, than Florida Atlantic. Like, I just... They give like, a two-for-one two to Liberty. I would rather that two-for-one go to SLU. I, exactly. Like, like there's a lot more collegiate basketball interest in Mizzou SLU uh, Mizzou, Mizzou, Missouri State, Kansas, Wichita State, uh, Illinois, Illinois State, um, shoot, Illinois to Paul, Illinois, <laughs> like like all these games should be played, and and I think it would make college basketball far more interesting. Um, but the reality is is like yes, Missouri is a better basketball program than SLU is because they have uh, more resources, they play in a better league. Uh, there's more available, like the, the TV deal is better. Um, the like level of recruit that they typically would get tends to be higher. Um, and, and even, even like for guys that, that you and I like kind of wish that, that Cons Martin would have taken like, like Terrence Hargrove, like even though Hargrove had a Missouri offer, like he chose slew because Mizzou stopped actively recruiting him. Like if, Mizzou really wanted Hargrove, they could have had him. And so, like, that is the difference between the two programs. And I don't mean that to denigrate SLU. SLU, like, they're doing a really great job there. Travis Ford has has uh, them playing as good a basketball uh, as they've, you know, played since Majerus era. Uh, that is also, coincidentally, some of the best basketball they've played since, like, the mid-90s. But let's, like, be real about what these programs are. And even in Missouri's, like, dark era it was it's still an overall better program than SLU um so they do have the right to say okay we should do a two for one um if SLU wants to play that game they should take the game and I don't have any idea like why they would turn that down they ended up taking a two for one with with Auburn but they talked Auburn into one of Auburn's home games into being on a neutral court, which is like 30 minutes from Auburn. So it's just like, I mean, come on. Like if, if you're really kind of coming down to that, it's, it's, it's more on slew in my opinion. Like if you want the game, the game is there to be had. Uh, and, and 
like I mean, we kind of talked about it offline, but uh, I was going to kick out of like, oh, well, you know, Conzo Martin's scared. Like, no, he's not. He called SMS. Sorry, I slipped there. He called Missouri State and SLU within the <laughs> last two years. And the, yeah. like, wanted to do a road trip to Springfield and wanted to do two for one with SLU. Uh, that doesn't sound like a coach who's balking at wanting to play those programs. Uh, I really I, don't think, like, like Consul Martin is not a guy who's like, oh, I'm worried that if I lose to that, you know, because he's not thinking that he's going to lose that game. Like that's that's how coaches at this level think. Like they take the game because they think they'll win the game. My thing that, and I've tweeted this out before, is I think what stands in the way of Slew Mizzou is logistics. Like Missouri's going to need seven to eight home games a year in the non-con for the gate for gate reasons. Like you just that's kind of standard. More teams now because it's harder to get good home and homes. With among high majors have gone to these MTEs, so you're going to go play in Orlando for three games. Well, that's three neutral floor games now, and if you're now needing to take four or five by games to fill your home slate, that only leaves four to five slots open for you're trying to get some high quality opponents. Missouri's got if a health if the program's healthy. It's got the SEC Big 12 filling one. It's got Bragging Rights filling a second. And we all hope, you know, Border Wars becomes a fixture, you know, kind of the week before Bragging Rights. That's three slots filled in, not including if you can get home and homes with other Power Five or like it, like they've done recently with AAC teams. It's just a question of other spots to fill. And so I think my thing was if Missouri offered a two-for-one given what the scheduling constraints it faces are, that that to me is a pretty good offer. That it says to SLU, look, for the next three years, we want to put you on the docket as one of those games that we we lock in. You know, that's what we think of you as a program. We recognize the A-10s, the sixth or seventh best conference. You're a contender in that league. Let's do two for one. Um, and you come to Columbia, whatever. Now, if they balk at that and say, hey, it's got to be four, or we want to flip it, I get on Slew's end why they would want to do that, but I think it says something that Missouri is like, look, we want to do three games with you. Now, we haven't played in 20 years. We want to lock in three games. And if Slew passed on that, th- that's their decision. I And, you know, they can have their rationale. I'm not going to judge them for it. I just think it's a shame that, like, Missouri, facing some of those constraints on its end, you know, couldn't get something worked out there. So it's just a shame. I wish it was happening. So we will be back next week. Um, Missouri doesn't play until Friday uh, against scheduled to play against Prairie View A&M on oh, Friday. Man. Well, um, could have been slew. Uh, but um, yeah, so we'll, we'll be back. In the meantime, you will have two podcasts from the uh, before the box score guys, uh, both reviewing the the Georgia contest. Hopefully, things turn out well for the good guys, and uh, and previewing the last game of the season, the Mississippi State Bulldogs. Got two cases of Bulldogs coming up. Um, we'll see if they get both games in. Looks, I, I feel pretty good at this point. We're going to play Georgia, Mississippi State. Always a wild card. I'm pretty sure mike leach is like a walking coronavirus infection um but we'll see what happens in the meantime we'll be back next week 
with uh, some post-Bragging Rights coverage. We'll take a look at the rest of the non-con schedule, and we'll take a peek into what may sort of lie ahead for the Missouri Tigers in their uh, SEC schedule, which is we're staring down the barrel of, uh, of the conference slate starting here in a few weeks, Matt. It's all happening so fast. <laughs> if it happens at all. Let's hope. Uh, so until then, follow Matt on Twitter. Uh, don't bother following me. Um, all hate mail goes to Mitch. And we will be back next week with more dive cuts. So thank you for tuning in.